We're finishing the letter to the Romans tonight. What do you think of that? So there for you who don't believe in miracles. Amanda over here has been doing the calculations. Apparently, she's been anxious for us to bring this to an end. And she calculated that we've been in this book for two years. So there you have it. Uh, and we'll finish tonight, Lord willing. Next week, if we're still here, we'll start Proverbs. That's in a different part of the Bible. That's in the Old Testament. I don't, I don't know if you knew that. We've been spending so long in the New Testament. That's in the Old Testament. Entirely different book. And God's behind that one as well. So Paul uh, is going to make his final remarks. And what a person says in finality at the end of a, uh, an exposition like Romans is very, very important. This is Paul's grand finale, as you will see. He warms up to it first in verse 21 by, um, by greeting the folks in Rome. He loved them, Roman believers. In prior verses, he sent personal greetings, and now for a few verses, he sends the greetings of his friends in Corinth. That's where he wrote Romans from. He was in Corinth, and he had a team with him. Here are their names. Uh, Timothy, my fellow worker. That's what it says, Romans 16, verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker. We know a lot about Timothy. He greets you, but also so do Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, or Sosipater. I don't know how to pronounce it. My kinsmen. You know, they weren't brothers by blood. Uh, they were brothers, well, I guess you, they were, by, by faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus. In fact, they were different kinds of people. They were not biological kin. They had a closer bond. They were spiritual kin. And when you come to be united with others through the blood of the Lord Jesus, then superficial differences don't loom quite as large. That was very pictorially demonstrated to us as these folks going to Hidalgo stood up here. What a wonderfully diverse group, don't you think? Kinsmen in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul, as outstanding a figure as he was, was not a lone ranger. He needed help. These were his comrades, and they're named here. And it's their greetings that he sends now to the folks whom he loved in Rome. Paul was the author, you know by now, of this grand letter. Every word of it, except, I think, for the next verse. Look, verse 22. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Wow. Paul let this person named Tertius write what he did there in verse 22. Now, though Paul received the entirety of this letter by inspiration from Almighty God, he didn't actually pen this letter. Tertius did. Tertius inscribed what God gave Paul to writing. Paul dictated his grand thoughts given by inspiration. He dictated those to Tertius who wrote it down, and now Paul allows Tertius some well-deserved credit for it. Now, this whole custom of using a, a secretary, a recording secretary, was pretty typical in that day and not unusual for Paul. In fact, the person who did it, get this, is called an amanuensis, amanuensis. So make sure you write that down because that's really important. It's not important at all. I just thought I would try to impress you with that word. Emmanuel, I don't know what it means, but, but that's, that, 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 that's the function of someone who recorded the words of another. It was called an Emmanuel, and Paul did it in many of his New Testament epistles. However, 
This is the first time that uh, recording secretary is named. We know this one, the one who penned uh, at Paul's behalf, the entire epistle of Romans, his name is Tertius. And this is the only time Tertius is mentioned in the whole New Testament. So you read about it, and you want to know more about him. Were you, was he married? Did he have children? What was his vocation? You know, what's his ethnicity? You want to know about all this kind of, how did he come to know the Lord? We know nothing. That's it. This is the only mentioned in the entire New Testament about this man, which leads to this conclusion. Folks, it's not only well-known Christians who can make a contribution. Can you imagine without the contribution of this man where we would be? Paul's inspired grand and glorious thoughts from a human point of view would not have been transmitted to us down to this very day if he didn't have Tertius to inscribe them, put them to parchment for us down to this very day. Now, why did Paul do things this way? Why didn't he just write letters with his own hand? Well, many think there was a possibility he would have, but he couldn't because he had an eye problem. A lot of people say that. In fact, he said this to the Galatians in his letter to them. He said, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So on the occasions when Paul did do his own writing, you see he had to write large, implying perhaps he had some impaired vision. And maybe that's why he used someone like Tertius to write for him. Folks, without Tertius, what was in Paul's mind would not have made it onto paper. Every Christian has a contribution to make. Now here's a greeting to the Romans from somebody else in verse 23. Gaius is his name. Host to me, Paul says, and to the whole church, he greets you. Gaius hosted a church in his home, so it must have been a large enough place to do so, and that was typical in that day. It was for centuries later that uh, church buildings came into fashion. In this day, folks would meet in house churches, coming together on special occasions, all the house churches. Anyway, Gaius was a good person and opened up his home. I guess he didn't lay claim to it. He didn't say, this is my home. I guess he prayed, oh, God, I want to use this for your glory. And God took him up on it. And so Christians met there to learn and to pray and to worship. And so Gaius provided that. He also provided, Paul says, a place for him. He was host to me. So get this, Paul indeed was the author of Romans. But it was Tertius, as we mentioned, who wrote it down. Now we find out it was Gaius who gave Paul, the great apostle, a place to live and work. Here's the point. No believer is unimportant to God. You know what our job is? Figure out what it is he wants us to do and just do it. Don't compare yourself to somebody else. Just do what God wants you to do. Don't look around. We're not all like Paul. We're not all, even all like Gaius or, or Tertius. But... We are who God made us to be. He's given us all the equipment and the resources to make a contribution for his glory. And that's our job. But now there's mention of somebody else, Erastus, who's called the city treasurer. And Paul says he greets you as well. Erastus was a government official, fairly high ranking, sort of secretary of finance in the city of Corinth. 
And we know that he had some status and was a man of means because in those days, if you had a governmental office, first you had to be a Roman citizen. Not any Tom, Dick, and Harry could do this. So he was a Roman citizen. He had all those rights and privileges. But not only that, interesting, in that day, you had to have some wealth because you would, contribute, you would contribute out of your own bank account for public projects. That's a little different than today, huh? You know, that's the way it is. So we know that this guy was... a. Uh, was, uh, was kind of high in, in, uh, in the social strata of society, and he had some money. You know, folks, there's not many like that who name the name of Jesus. I don't know exactly why that is, but not too many people of wealth and prominence uh, submit to the Lord Jesus. I suppose power and uh, prestige and uh, bank accounts sort of distract. Uh, there are some, but not many. Anyway, Erastus was one. And then there's someone named Cortus. Look, it says, and Cortus, the brother. That's all we know about him. But it's not a whole lot. But yeah, it is when you think about it. Cortus had an entirely new status. He was a new creature. He was adopted into the family of God. He could pray, oh God, my father. He could pray that with someone as high and mighty as Erastus. Cortus was a brother just like everybody else. He, he was not any second-class citizen. He was a member of the family of God. He was kin in this sense to Paul and, and all the others. So too are you. You're a brother. You're a sister. That's who you are. You're adopted into God's family. Whatever else may be true of you, whatever else you've inherited from people significant to you, maybe wounded, the things that have wounded you, kind of forget that, would you please? Don't focus on that. I'll tell you who you are if you're in Christ. You're a brother. You're a sister. He's your father, Cortus, the brother. Now verse 24, a little bit of controversy maybe. It says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Does that verse stand out in your Bible in any particular way? Do you have it in parentheses or italics or uh, brackets? Anybody have anything like that? Maybe I'm just making this up. I might have dreamed it. Uh, in verse 20, Paul said something very similar to this. Many Greek manuscripts, in fact, good ones, do not have, therefore, verse 24, the same sentiment as expressed in verse 20. They don't have it repeated in verse 24. So it's up to you to decide whether it belongs in there or not. No major issue or point of doctrine is at stake here. I just in fairness have to point this out, which would explain why maybe you have brackets or even a side note in your Bible. It might say uh, some of the uh, Greek manuscripts do not have verse 24 in it. Okay, enough of that. Now something more important. After these final greetings, in the final three verses of Romans, something takes place. It's called a doxology. And that is a praise to God. Interesting, after writing the greatest theology perhaps that's ever been written. I mean, Romans is the doctrinal masterpiece of the Bible. After doing all that, what, is, what does Paul do with all that theology? It leads him to a doxology. He has to stop as he's reflecting on the truths which God communicated through him to all of us. As he took note of all 16 chapters of what he had written under inspiration, it sort of took his breath away, and he had no choice now but to stop dead in his tracks and praise God. Listen, i got to tell you something. If you're in Bible study, I don't care how deep it is, and it doesn't ultimately lead to a doxology, you're missing the point. 
We don't study the Bible merely to be informed. We study the Bible to be transformed from a focus of attention on us to Almighty God, who is the God of all truth. So doxology must always follow theology. Otherwise, you're putting theology to the wrong use. Some of us study theology as a means of dividing from others, kind of as a weapon and as a tool, you know what I mean? As a barometer of who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. That's not the point of theology. The point of theology is to bow before the God of all theological truth and bring praise to his name. And the greatest theologian, perhaps of all time, the Apostle Paul, that's what he does at this time. He doesn't want to divide from all those who, like Quartus, are brothers and sisters in Christ. He's okay about there being differences in certain collateral areas. The point is that all those who name the name of Jesus would praise his name. Everything must move towards a doxology, and that's what it does here. And Paul is so excited. I think there's emotion in this great intellect because at this point, the final three verses in the original Greek have no commas, no periods, no semicolons. They are an uninterrupted one sentence in the Greek. It's as if Paul, at the end of Romans, takes a deep breath and spewed forth praise to Almighty God, and he got so excited, he was like a volcano volcano of, a, of a, a, a erupting emotion, and he couldn't even stop. At the end, I think when he got to verse 27, he went, oh, I'm exhausted in giving praise to Almighty God. So that's what happens. Here's how, how it begins. Verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you. That's important because you and me were shaky and easily shaken it's not an established, stable day in which we live. On all fronts, things are being shaken up. All of us are shaky, even spiritually. There's not a person here, I think, who doesn't from time to time wonder, will I really stand in the judgment? When I stand before Almighty God, the judge of all, will I really be acquitted or will I be found guilty? Every one of us from time to time have doubts. Of course, the evil one puts those doubts in our mind. And then we have a phrase that says, don't doubt. Paul says, he, him, almighty God, is the one who's able to establish you. You know what that word comes from? It comes from a word in the Greek meaning to prop up. You can't sustain yourself. You can't establish yourself. You are shaky. You're not weak. You can't prop up yourself. But almighty God says, I will prop you up. I will sustain you. I will make you strong. The work which I began in you. You didn't begin it. You didn't save yourself. I'm the Savior. I'm the author and finisher of your salvation. God says, I who began a good work in you, I will finish it until the day of completion in Christ Jesus. Paul is just praising. Oh, how did he get all that? From all the theology which preceded, he comes to this conclusion. I'm shaking. I'm a sinner. I sin sometimes again and again. I do it because I like to. I sin sometimes and I don't even realize it. I sin not only, sin only, not only in overt ways, but in thought as well. Is there something wrong with my heart? I'm shaking. And Paul says, wait a second. Did you see the grace of God expressed in the pages of the letter to the Romans? It's that God of all grace who is able 
to establish you. How? Well, it goes on. Paul says, according to my gospel. That's how. And the preaching of Jesus Christ. And the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Folks, the substance of the gospel. We use the phrase all the time. The term gospel. The substance of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Whenever you talk to someone about Jesus, you are sharing parts of the gospel. That's the gospel. It's the message of the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says God is able to establish you. It is done according to my gospel. The gospel declares that because of what Christ has done for us, we will stand before Almighty God guilt-free. That's the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has done a redemptive work. The gospel is not anything ours by merit or virtue or commitment or promise or anything. The gospel has to do with the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is what establishes us. We don't stand by our own merit or virtue or lineage or ethnicity or anything like that. We don't stand by our good intentions. We stand by our acceptance of the gospel. And it is God who establishes us and strengthens us with the truth of the gospel. Not just at the point of salvation, but every day. Every day when the enemy moves in to condemn we need the gospel which says, oh God, guilty as charged, but there is no case against me because you poured out your wrath. The wrath do me on your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we say, get thee behind me, Satan, accuser of the brethren, for you have no case against. See, the gospel, the gospel sustains us every day. Now, did you notice Paul refers to it as my gospel? That trips up a lot of people. Because they say it was a different gospel than that of Jesus. It's, Paul says, it's my God. No, no, you're missing it. No, no, no. He uses a personal pronoun, my gospel, because the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was what he preached. What Paul preached. This is my message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was not only his by virtue of his preaching of it, it was his by virtue of his acceptance of it. Paul says, this is what I preach, this is what I believe, this is what I own into, this is, this is what I stake my entire eternity on. In that sense, it's my God. By the way, if you can't use the personal pronoun before the word gospel, you may not be saved. It can't just be the gospel in general terms. It can't be the gospel it has to be my gospel, the one I believe in, the one that changed me, the one that took root in my life, the one that granted me freedom in Christ Jesus. So that's what Paul says. And then in verse 25, he says, uh, all this was according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. So here's what's happening. A merciful God had a plan before time, to redeem lost people. You see, time does not constrain God. There's no past, present, future for God. We're locked into it. He's, he transcends time, meaning from eternity past. He saw us 
and our sin coming. And from eternity past, he worked out a gracious plan to save us from our sin. And he revealed it through Old Testament prophets and all of their, uh, we call them types or foreshadowings and temples and sacrifices. But even when these Old Testament prophets wrote about God's gracious plan of salvation, they didn't really fully understand what they were writing about. Did you know that? In that sense, it was a mystery to them. Not something to be figured out, but something to be progressively revealed over time and fully clarified in the New Testament. They didn't have the clarity about the gospel we do now because they didn't have the benefit of the New Testament. So God introduced his redemptive plan in the Old Testament. And now, verse 26, we read, it's manifested, you see? It was revealed in embryonic form in the Old. It is manifested in the New Testament. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations. That's why these people are going to Hidalgo. The gospel is for all people, all nations, leading to obedience of faith. Now, folks, what the prophets of the Old Testament wrote about they didn't fully understand. Let me give you an example. Just one example. Uh, we're taking, some of us are going to Israel, Lord willing, soon. And uh, I asked our group to memorize one verse of scripture um, from Isaiah chapter 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I said, ask God to give you a chance to share that with someone. Simply ask them, who's the him in that verse? I want to read to you just some of Isaiah 53. It was written by Isaiah uh, centuries before this Jesus was enfleshed. Therefore, I'm certain what Isaiah wrote, he didn't fully understand. We fully understand who Isaiah was talking about because we're looking back on Isaiah 53 through the lens of the New Testament, don't you see? What Isaiah 53 was introducing is fully manifested in the New Testament. That's how you study the Old Testament, through New Testament eyes. So, so I want to read to you just parts of Isaiah 53. Think about it. This is 700, maybe 800 years before the enfleshment, before the time of Christ. Listen, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. He was pierced. Wow. Through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. In fact, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep, Silent before its shearers, so he didn't open his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Who, I ask you, is Isaiah talking about? What's your answer? Yes, you know that, and you're right, because the one whom Isaiah was speaking about has been manifested. We know him to be Jesus, but I don't think Isaiah did, to tell you the truth. We have a clear picture of him now because he's been manifested. But in the Old Testament, God's redemptive plan was merely unfolding. What was then, you see, a mystery has now been made clearly known. And that's what Paul wrote about, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of Romans. God has plainly made evident to us that though we are sinners, his merciful plan is, always has been, to provide a means of forgiveness through the sacrifice of the sacrificial lamb, the Lord Jesus, and then to embrace us as children and to establish us through this life and on into the next, through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This was Paul's gospel. That's the whole theme of Romans. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's longest letter, Romans, is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how could Paul, how could we not respond uh, to these truths with a doxology like this in verse 27? To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Can you say amen? Amen. Our God is so wise that he saved us the way he did. If he chose to say us by our good intentions and by our merit and by our virtue, by our church attendance and by our giving and all the We would boast in it. Yeah. But he's so wise, he stripped all that away, leveled the playing field. You know what he said? All of you have sinned and fallen short of my glory. And the only wise God therefore provided a means of salvation based purely on what he's done, not on anything we propose to do. How wise he is. Therefore, all glory must go to him. Nobody could take, no one would dare take credit for his or her salvation. How wise God, how unwise it would have been for God to save us, even partially, by our own doing. That's all it would take for us to cease boasting in the cross and instead boast in our own virtue and character. We're tempted to do it even now, you say. Oh, no, but the only wise God said, it's not anything you do for me, it's what I have done for you. You don't have anything to offer. I offered my only begotten son. 
And so in this way, we are obligated, don't you see, to praise him now and forevermore and not call attention to ourselves. Folks, did you know we live in the midst of a world filled with false gods? Yeah. But the God who Paul wrote about is the only wise God, especially with respect to salvation. I'll tell you what I mean. With respect to his followers, the God of Judaism, my background, is not wise at all. The God of Islam is not wise. The God of Buddhism or Hinduism is not wise. The God of the cults is not wise. The God of materialism is not wise. The God of rationalism, the religion of the day, is not wise. Folks, the God of the Bible, the God whom Paul has so eloquently written about in the pages of Romans, he is the only wise God with respect to salvation. For only his plan of salvation, through our acceptance of his finished redemptive work in his son, only that plan works, only that plan Brings him glory. Don't you see? He's the only one. You know how wise he is? His plan of salvation is wise in that it was planned before time. It's not an afterthought. It is wise in that it was clearly manifested in time so that none are with excuse. It is wise in that it addresses the sin problem of all people. Do you know there were warring groups in Romans who Paul wrote about? It was the Jews and the Gentiles. Racism is not a new thing. It's a human thing. And in that day, the two groups most uh, antagonistic towards one another were the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul said, God is so wise that he brought Jews and Gentiles together in one new person through the cross of Jesus Christ. The Jews couldn't lay claim to their traditions and laws and all the rest. The Gentiles couldn't say, we are without excuse, we don't have those laws. God has judged all humankind on the basis of what they know through conscience and creation so that no one could say, I am without sin, not the Jew and not the Gentile. And therefore, we all have to bow before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Jews and Gentiles can be part of the same family. Only the only wise God could have come up with a plan like that. God's plan of salvation is so wise in this respect, it satisfies what to us seem to be competing objectives. You have the justice of God, and then you have the expressed mercy of God. Can you please tell me how to harmonize both with respect to our sin? He's either going to judge us or he's going to let us off the hook. Which is it? It's both. That's the brilliance and the wisdom of salvation. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, God's justice was satisfied. Someone paid the price for sin. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, his mercy was satisfied. It was not us. His son Pay the price. You see how wise is the gospel message. And so we conclude right now our study of Romans, just as Paul did, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. And if you cannot say amen, would you give us a few minutes of your time at the conclusion of our service? We'd like to meet with you in that room back there, the Connection Center, to talk more about this. Where do you stand with Almighty God?
Do you feel that he's established you? Are you secure in your relationship with him? Are you looking forward to standing in his presence? Or are you filled with fear? We would love to meet with you so that the gospel, that means good news of Jesus Christ, could set you free. Because we want every single person to be able to conclude the book of Romans with a hearty amen, which means I agree, it is true. If you can uh, attest to the truthfulness of the 16 chapters of Romans, could I hear a hearty amen? Amen. Now let me ask you to stand to your feet. And let's close with a more modern day doxology. You know of this, most of you. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise him, all creatures here below. I messed up the words, didn't I? That's what happens, you get old. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, right? Let's do that, let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Don't forget the amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. Go in peace because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God bless you.